Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So let's begin this, this epistle with one word. And it's a word that just, it's, it's going to be a gift that keeps on giving with this epistle. And the word is one. Uh, it's this idea of unity. President uh, Henry V. Eyring has spoken about this in General Conference on a variety of occasions. The need for unity and how Christ becomes this great unifier. That's what his at one meant is centered in, is, is helping us to become one with a variety of things, with God, with each other, with all of our relationships. So in chapter one, you're going to find that the oneness is between heaven and earth. In chapter two, you're going to find that the oneness is between Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 5, you're going to find that the oneness is between husbands and wives, or these family relationships. But the, the fascinating thing to note as we get into the epistle to the Ephesians is it's not just a random disembodied concept of unity. It's actually an embodied concept in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is here at the center, and it's only through him that in all of these, all of these areas, we can even hope to find oneness or unity. So here's Paul in Rome, in prison. Just keep that in mind as you listen to this very powerful message that's centered on the oneness that we all can experience with Jesus Christ, written by a man who is being divided and physically separated from people, from friends, and yet he knows what ultimately matters. And then I want to tie this into way back in Genesis at creation, God pronounces good the creation after he separates all these opposites. And you might say these things might be opposites. It's interesting that God creates goodness out of dividing opposites, but then bringing unity where there's appropriate boundaries, but these opposites have their place, their purpose, and their function. And Paul will talk about this, that oneness and unity is not necessarily sameness. And just a quick example he'll talk about, he gave apostles and prophets and teachers. So as you look at this message from Paul, you can ask yourself, where have I experienced God's oneness in my life? Where could I be more unified? And where can I embrace and appreciate differences in the unity of the whole of Christ's body with the members of the community that I have joined in covenantal community with? That's beautiful. Now, on that foundation, let's jump in. Chapter 1, he gives his typical opening, um, his, his recognition of his calling as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then his his typical signature nod to the Godhead in verse um, 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings 
in heavenly places in Christ. You'll notice that phrase again and again and again as we go through Ephesians. Everything is in Christ. We have no hope, we have no grace, we have no peace, only in Christ. That's where it is to be found, and he, he acknowledges that. And by the way, as a side note, that very first word in verse 2, grace be to you, that comes from that Greek word charis, which is the root for the English word charisma. It's this, it's this power to lead and to love. So for those who'd like to see how that might be written out, the charis is pronounced as a, as a ch sound. That's beautiful. So now, notice verse 4. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him. God the Father chose us in Christ, not independent of the Lord, before the foundation of the world. That is beautiful doctrine from a, from a Latter-day Saint perspective that before the foundation of the world, if we read in the, in the Pearl of Great Price over in the book of Abraham, chapter 3, he talks about seeing many of the noble and the great ones who were there before the foundation of the world, and many of them were chosen before even the beginning of the creation, that, that foundation of the world, meaning we're setting things up for this creation. And he says, what were we chosen for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us for holiness, to become one in Christ, one with him and one with God through Christ. I'm still just so impressed that Paul, in the circumstances he finds himself, he's been persecuted, he's been beaten, he's been left for dead. Here he is in prison and his message is love. How many of us who've in our moments of deepest suffering would say, the message I want to share with the world right now is God's love. This is how God's love can transform even the most difficult, challenging suffering that we can realize that ultimately everything is brought into oneness through his love and healed. You know, Taylor, that reminds me of, of one of President Russell and Nelson's famous statement that, that our, our happiness, our joy, our peace in life is not determined by anything external, by, by these, these external forces of life, but rather by our internal devotion, dedication, consecration, conversion to Christ. That's where our peace is felt. That's where our grace is felt, because from a worldly perspective, like you're saying, th there is no grace, there is no peace for Paul. But he's clearly not shaking his fist at heaven saying, why are you letting these bad things happen to me when I've been so good and I've been trying so hard to be so good for so long and suffered so many things? It's, it's beautiful how when we read scriptures, they actually teach us how to suffer well as well as how to prosper and how to bless others in, in, in times of more peace. But this is a beautiful example. Now look at verse 5. God, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, there's a Christian tradition, it's been around for centuries, uh, called uh, Calvinism. Calvinism is this idea of it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do, God has either predestinated me to be saved 
or to be damned, and I can't change it. So I can I can do things, but it's not going to change the outcome because it has been predetermined, or I have been predestined to one or the other. So because of that doctrine that we, in a Latter-day Saint perspective, would not agree with that, that Calvinist conclusion because we would preach based on what we understand from scriptures of the Restoration, that there's an incredible amount of power wrapped up in this idea of agency and its counterpart, accountability, that it's not predetermined whether I'm going to, to go to heaven or go to hell. It's predetermined that I have lots of options and lots of choices. So, what would happen if you took verse 5 and instead of saying, ooh, I don't like that because it talks about predestination, what if we shifted away from speaking about verse 5 in the singular context? Instead of seeing it as God's talking about me or you as an individual, what if we looked at verse 5 from a whole group that has become one perspective, which seems to be the thrust of the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, all of a sudden, would anybody disagree from a, from a Latter-day Saint perspective to say, no, 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 we don't believe that there's any group or family or sets of tribes of people who have been foreordained or predestinated for salvation. I think we would say, wait a minute, the house of Israel was the group that was predestinated. If you're going to be saved, that's the group you have to become a part of. You have to either be born in it or adopted into it. Now, with that perspective of a, of a unity among that diverse group across all parts of the world as we move forward, let's read verse 5 again, not thinking of an individual, but of a collective group. Having predestinated us, or all of us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, all of a sudden, you say, oh, that's a beautiful verse. And now you tie in what President Nelson said, anytime we do anything to help anyone make and keep covenants on either side of the veil, we are gathering Israel. We are bringing people into this predestinated family of Israel. That's the only place where salvation is offered. That is the predestinated group for heaven, but there's this agency factor that's attached that allows us to choose whether we enter into that family or not. When I look at this word predestinated, building on what Tyler has taught, you might also consider reading the word plan of salvation. God has a plan. You could say, having created a plan of salvation for us, which would include if we choose to receive the gifts of the plan of salvation, we are adopted as children of Jesus Christ. We are brought into this oneness. So, we hope that those perspectives might help you make sense of this word predestinated that in the past have been seen in a different way, like there was just no choice no matter what, God is going to make things happen and your agency doesn't matter. That we believe is not correct, but instead our agency does matter and the plan of salvation invites us as a collective whole to be one with Jesus. Now look at verse 7. What's the very first word? In. Again, 
everything is going to keep coming back to being in Christ. So it's in whom we have redemption through, so it's not just in, but it's also through Christ, throughout this this epistle, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, and he's made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. It's that idea that when we seek revelation, when we seek guidance, when we seek comfort, when we seek direction or answers to our prayers, trying to make major decisions or trying to overcome difficulties, sometimes we don't get exactly what we asked for, when we asked for it, how we asked for it. I love the reality that Paul is painting this picture for these Ephesians to say, can you just trust that God is more powerful and more knowledgeable and more loving and more grace-filled than you can possibly imagine. So if you're doing the best you can, you're seeking for help and it's not coming, let it go. Don't, don't let go your faith, don't let go of your pleading, but let go of that frustration, let go of that anxiety of, oh, I, I, why isn't he answering? And you simply move forward trusting that God is doing his will according to his timing with us. And it's powerful when we can let go of that, that feeling of, of deep frustration when we're not getting exactly what we want, how we want it. Well, it's interesting you use this word trust, Tyler, because that shows up in verse 12 and verse 13. Yeah, so, so be, even before we get to the trust in 12 and 13, look at the oneness in verse 10, which builds us into this trust. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, Joseph Smith has interpreted the seventh dispensation, our dispensation, as the dispensation of the fullness of times. It may have been interpreted a little differently back by these Ephesian recipients of this letter, because in their mind, they feel like in that early day that they're living in the dispensation of the fullness of times, and they're getting closer and closer to the coming of Christ. They, many of them think it's going to be in their day. Notice he says, he might gather together in one, all things in Christ. What percentage of things? That's all things. The Lord isn't trying to separate and divide and draw boundary lines. He's trying to bring together all things in one in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. I love something that uh, a New Testament scholar has shared and he's pretty, pretty strong on this. N.T. Wright, um, he's, he's a, a great scholar of the New Testament, and he has pointed out repeatedly this concept that for some reason, our world feels this, this inherent need to cut and divide asunder and separate things, including heaven and earth. And N.T. Wright's point is, he says, so often we talk about heaven as if it's far away, galaxies away, and this terrible earth that we live on, we've just got to kind of slog our way through it and hope that we'll be saved so we can leave this terrible place and go to heaven. And N.T. Wright says, Jesus came from heaven to earth 
to bring the two of them together. The kingdom of God is on the earth. He's trying to, he's not trying. He is establishing an outpost of heaven here on the earth. He came down and he squarely and firmly planted the flag of heaven here. And if you're going to be saved, this is great Latter-day Saint theology or doctrine as well. If you're going to be saved in the celestial kingdom of our God, you won't be somehow transported from this planet to some unknown, disclosed, undisclosed location out in, out in the universe. Heaven will have planted its flag in your heart, in your soul, right here. So, instead of waiting for that day to, to escape and go to heaven, perhaps we could plead with God to grant our eyes vision to see more of the heavenly and more of the unity that Christ brings and more of the Zion that Christ is establishing increasingly and at an accelerated pace. And, it, and based on what President Nelson has been teaching, some of the greatest miracles that he has ever performed are pending, and we will see more and more and more as heaven takes over and makes the earth heavenly. So, verse 10 is a, is a beautiful principle for us to find more joy in our journey and see earth not quite the way social media or you turn on the news on TV and you see all the bad. Uh, perhaps we could spend less time focusing there and more time focusing on what our prophets, seers and revelators are telling us about what Christ is doing here. Well, including in verse 11, it says, in whom, this is through Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? We inherit the earth. We inherit heaven because of Jesus Christ. So there's not this division. So we have these promises, which you see again down in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, that means Jesus, also after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul is trying to bring this all together right here at the beginning of Ephesians. Oneness is in Jesus Christ. We can trust in him. Our inheritance is in him. We can find right now joy in building out the kingdom of God wherever we stand, wherever we are. Any act of goodness that we do helps push forward God's kingdom. And becomes a touch point for heaven in our own, in our own domain. We can, we can bring that unity and oneness in your little worlds, where, wherever, whatever part of the vineyard our, our little part of the world happens to be. We can make a difference there. We can make a heavenly difference there. And it's powerful. Notice verse 14. This, what is the sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise in verse 13? He says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Remember when we talked about this uh, in, a, in a previous lesson, the word earnest here has financial underpinnings in the Greek. It's this earnest money or this small down payment because he's saying, He's going to make a purchased possession of you. Christ came from heaven 
purchase your soul, and he did. He paid for it. It's already paid. We're already redeemed. Now he just gives us these little earnest down payments of the Holy Ghost along the way to remind us that we're going to receive the praise of his glory. So then he, he gives in, in this next column, verse 15 through 23, he's giving you um, this idea of how grateful he is because of some of the reports that he's gotten back from what's going on in Ephesus. And remember, during that third missionary journey, he spent two years among these Ephesian saints. He knows them probably as well as any other group he's written to. He's at least spent at least as much time with them as anybody else and possibly even more than any other group. He knows them very well. And notice he says, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What a beautiful, uh, tender connection that this, this apostle has with these people. He's invested so much into them and he's so grateful um, to find out that they've, they've continued in the faith. Compared to the challenges he faced with the Galatians who seemed to be drawn away by <laughs> preachers who didn't really understand the gospel or the Corinthians who had to receive multiple letters from him to try and encourage them to stay, stay faithful. So this seems to be one of those letters he is probably a bit happier to be writing. Absolutely. Now you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and he's, he's making this contrast between who you used to be, you Ephesian saints, compared to who you are. Look at verse 2. Wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You were walking after that. You were, you were in that course. But then look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And I love that the King James translators put in a little winky face there at the end. That little semicolon, close parenthesis. There were no punctuation marks in the Greek manuscripts in the early uh, editions of the Bible. So this is a King James translation edition, but I think it's well placed. So this, this idea here, in fact, he uses these contrasts a lot, is that you have the Gentiles who sometimes, what he talks about is they represent death and sinfulness. You have the Jews who represent God's covenant. And now God is basically bringing them into one. So those who had access to the covenant, but always didn't always take advantage of it properly. And those who were not born into the covenant and just essentially were born into a very fallen state and having no access to the gospel, they essentially lived dead lives. And now God's mercy has brought them into life. So Paul sometimes speaks in complicated ways, but this is what he's trying to use from a metaphor. Gentiles represent death, but now they're back in life in Jesus, and every, even the Jews are in that unity with, with Jesus. And, and all of that coming to this center, coming into Christ, that oneness with Christ, can there be any other label for that than grace and grace alone? They didn't, neither group deserved this, neither group earned this, but the Lord gave it to both groups. Now look what he, what he continues to say, verse 8. 
For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He brings us into this oneness, not so we can eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow be saved, but he brings us into this oneness so that we can abound in good works through his grace. So he brings us in by his grace, and then he enables us through his grace to abound in good works, to become more like him, to be turned outward. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter anymore because we're no longer defined by those labels of the world because we've taken on a primary identity as taught in that great talk. We've mentioned it many times and we'll keep mentioning it, Choices for Eternity from President Nielsen, those three primary identities. I am a child of God. I am a child of the covenant. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, all of which is encapsulated in the goodness and the grace and the merits and the mercy of Christ and of of God to bring that to us, which becomes this beautiful foundation for what he says next. And as we get to that, let's just paint the context again that when Paul was in Ephesus, this is one of the leading Greco-Roman cities. It was full of some of the greatest architectural marvels dedicated to all the different Greek and Roman gods. And in most of those religious sentiments, the way that those religions worked to worship the Greek or Roman gods, is you had all sorts of works that you had to do to appease the gods or to convince the gods that you deserved something from them. So for the Ephesians, you're going to realize that Paul is being very fixated on teaching grace and faith against works, in part because these people who were Gentiles, not Jews who'd grown up with the whole works-based thing, they had to keep the commandments, the Gentiles knew, if I want the grace of these gods in my society, I have to do all sorts of works. And Paul's trying to counteract that. And we have to just put ourselves in that context and realize really how earth-shattering this doctrine is, that no, the gods that you are serving have actually they don't exist. There's one God who actually has served you. He has served you freely, and all he asks is for you to receive that gift. Now, there are some obligations of receiving the free gift, and Paul does talk about that. But first and foremost, stop thinking you have to earn the love of any of these fake gods or the real God. That's, that is the context that Paul is really trying to emphasize here when he's teaching this doctrine about the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, look at this next little comparison that comes up, and and I believe it's probably more geared to those who have a Jewish understanding of the tabernacle and the temple, Um, but it could also have multiple implications for uh, the, the Gentiles' understanding as well. But look at verse 12 that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You You were not thinking about him, you were not praying to him, you were not following him at that time. But now, 
in Christ Jesus. There's that word again, in. Everything is in the Savior. Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You used to be way out there, so far cut off from God and all of his goodness and his merits and his mercy and his grace, but now you've become nigh. You've been brought into this fold. Verse 14, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What does that middle wall partition even mean? What's the reference here? That's why I say I think this is uh, initially from Paul's perspective, he, he might be alluding to that fence or that soreg as it's called in the temple back in Jerusalem. There's a, a latticework fence that's about 500 cubits square and it has 13 openings around the perimeter, and it separates in the temple, as you can see here in this 3D rendition from virtualscriptures.org. You can see that as you walk up to any one of these openings, on the side here, there was, according to Josephus, on one side it was an inscription in, in Greek, and on the other side it was written in Latin, just to make sure all the Gentiles could read it. And the inscription says, basically, Gentiles beware. If you pass by this point, you will be responsible for your own death because basically we're going to kill you. So as we now look at this this bird's eye view of the temple looking down, you have this, this 500 cubit square area that Gentiles are not allowed to enter. It is a middle wall of partition and they cannot get in. So that is as close as they can come to the symbolic presence of God in the Holy of Holies is coming up to, to this soreg. Now, if you're a a woman at that time, a Jewish woman, let's take this this verse one or two steps further. You're welcome to come through if you're a Jewish woman, and you can now come into this part, which is the court of the women. But there's this huge, beautiful Nicanor gate at the top of these semicircular steps, and if you're a woman, you are not allowed to pass that point. That gate becomes a middle wall of partition for you. And if you're a man, you can go through that gate and you can maybe ascend some of these these little steps here up to this one cubit high separating wall. But if you're not a priest, if you're not in the tribe of Levi and appointed to be on, on shift, so to speak, in the court of the priests, that little uh, partition becomes a wall for you. That's as close as you can get to the presence of God. And if you're a priest that wasn't assigned to go into the holy place to burn the incense or to refill the olive oil in the menorah, then this outer veil and outer door into the holy place becomes a middle wall of partition for you. And if you're not the high priest, then the veil here that we're looking at becomes a middle wall of partition for you because only the high priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Multiple middle walls of partition for everybody except for the high priest. And and where does this come from? Many cultures and religions have this idea of gradations of holiness, but we could probably tie this right back to the experience that Moses had. Remember, Moses helped save the people out of Egypt under the power of God, and God wants to bring them all into his presence at the Sinai Temple Mountain. 
And what the people say? Oh, actually, we're too afraid to encounter God, Moses. You go on our behalf. And so God established a series of gradations of holiness, begins right back there, about, well, if you guys don't want to enter into my presence, I'm going to create stepping stones but when, uh, to, to have access to my presence. But when Christ comes, all that's broken down. Christ is now allowing everybody, if they're willing to receive his freely offered gift of salvation, they have full access to the presence of God. That's so beautiful. It's so empowering. We no longer have to feel like victims of circumstances and, and of the world. We can embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers us and move forward with confidence in him. Notice verse 15, Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So he becomes this embodiment, this unity of heaven and earth. He takes upon him flesh. And Hebrews chapter 10 that we'll get to later is, is this beautiful theme that President Nelson has taught now so powerfully that the, the flesh of Christ is symbolized by that veil. And you'll remember when he was crucified on the cross and died, the first thing that Matthew mentions after some, some resurrection stuff, he, he mentions the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. Brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that the tearing down of the middle wall of partition occurred on the, on the cross and in the trials and in Gethsemane. That's the process whereby all of these barriers, all of these separating and dividing lines and gradations are torn down and heaven opened wide the gate to say all are welcome to come in, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're man or woman, whether you're uh, common uh, from one of the other tribes or from the tribe of Levi, one of the priests. Whether you're a priest or a high priest, it doesn't matter anymore. All are welcome to come in because Christ has broken down every wall of partition that separates me from the presence of God, and He is the way. I don't have to, f I don't have to find some hidden path. I just need to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's based in love. There's this word here that we're probably all familiar with in English called enmity. And the word enmity is based on the Latin word like ami, which means love. And we know that God's covenants are all about love. And when you put the N in front of ami, it means not love or not in a loving relationship. So our word enmity also is where we get the word enemy, okay? Which is, is a variant of saying somebody, an enemy is somebody I don't love. What do we hear in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies and pray for them, <laughs> which means they have to be your ami. In fact, you might know the word amigo in Spanish comes from this. An amigo is a friend, it's the word or somebody Rooted that you love. are love, and not like I'm in this romantic relationship, but you care about them and you have 
mutual obligations to one another. And Christ is saying, I'm breaking all this down and it comes back to this oneness. You can even put the word on me in here. It's all about love. By the way, any woman out there with the name Amy, that's the word. <laughs> now, Let's hunker down for just a moment in these next verses because they're beautiful. Verse 17, Christ came and he preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. There's Gentile and Jew who were already close to this, this uh, recognition of God and his covenant connections that he's offering. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In, in Christ, there is no foreigner. There is no outcast stranger. We are all one in him. Look at verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. I love this concept of being fitly framed together. And you've got apostles and prophets, but Christ is the chief cornerstone. It's just, the imagery is so beautifully secure, especially when you consider the talk given by President Russell M. Nelson when he talked about the Salt Lake Temple and having the temple become our sure foundation for our life of faith and devotion and dedication to Christ moving forward. And you look at the effort put into strengthening the temple in Salt Lake, and that is just a placeholder, beautiful symbol for what the Lord, through his prophets and apostles, is doing with us. How firm a foundation is laid for our faith. Which brings us now to chapter 3. Notice he says in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I love those three verses because what they're showing is Paul is acknowledging this fact that it's not as if everybody's born into a complete understanding and a knowledge, either individually or collectively, that sometimes the power of having prophets and apostles on the earth is to trust that God is actually using them the way that he's always used apostles and prophets through the history of time, which is to reveal great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God for our time, our day, and our situation. I love that. I also love that Paul's being a little bit personal here. It's not super obvious, but he's kind of expressing joy and wonder that he, who had been so persecuted in the church, was called by God to deliver this message of grace to the Gentiles. So he sees himself in the large plan of salvation and God's work that he was given the privilege to play this important role to help more people know these truths that he's sharing. And I think a little bit like we have in the Book of Mormon, where Ammon and his brothers, after they've had so much success among the Lamanites, um, they, some of them faint out of joy. I can almost see Paul here in prison just feeling this enormous joy and even just wonderment that God would have chosen him. 
a total outcast in terms of his actions, <laughs> to call him out to help save other people. He, he, he gives a nod to that in verse 8, right? That's basically what he's saying here. Unto me, God, God's working effectually by his power in me, who am less than the least of all saints, in this, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The great mystery is God's goodness and his grace that comes to us in and through and of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, and I'm less than the least, and I'm, I'm a walking object lesson of God's grace, is basically what Paul's telling these saints. Amen. Now, he, he brings us down into chapter 4, and he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. <laughs> I think that's fascinating because he, he could have very easily said a prisoner of the Romans or a prisoner of Caesar, mm -hmm. but he's choosing to see the hand of God in his circumstance. A prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering and forbearing one another in love. So he gives you the what in verse 1, walk worthy, and he gives you the, the more mechanical, the how. How do I do this? Back in verse 1, there's this really powerful word, therefore. Now, often when we read, we just kind of read quickly and we sometimes miss important words. Paul has spent three chapters laying out what we might call God's story of salvation. And then in chapter 4, it's, okay, therefore, because of this fact of what God has done to offer salvation, therefore, your story is to do these things to be folded into God's story. So that therefore is a turning point in the sixth chapter epistle to the Ephesians. And obviously he was speaking directly to these Ephesians a long time ago, but we can now say to ourselves, okay, this therefore is something I need to be paying attention to. Yes, I can look back at the first three chapters and see all that God has done so gracefully for me. Therefore, how do I respond? What should I be doing to help participate in God's work of creating oneness. And the next three chapters are a series of extended discussions for how oneness can be achieved. That's a powerful reminder that, that those first three chapters keep us focused on what God's done. Now, four, five, and six are what God is willing to help us do in, in that building. That is a powerful reminder. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Now, if you if you look at chapter four, starting in verse four, remember this key word, this this look for concept and principle in the epistle to the the Ephesians, the word one. Notice this: there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all." Fascinating wording here coming from Paul, that the Father is in you all. Joseph Smith taught very clearly that this is an old sectarian notion that, that God the Father or Jesus Christ could come and dwell inside of us. That is the role of the Holy Ghost, why he's a spirit. But it's this idea of the influence and the power of God dwelling in us. Wherefore, verse 8, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity, 
captive. <laughs> Don't you love that little play on words? He, he led captivity, that which used to bind you and separate you and isolate you. Christ came down and he led that captivity captive. It can no longer hold on to you because you have embraced the Savior. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So here you get the doctrine of Christ's condescension and exaltation, that he descended below all so that he could ascend us up to become like him, become heavenly, which now leads us to verse 11. Which is an interesting verse because we're talking about oneness. And again, oneness does not mean sameness. <laughs> I think Tyler and I are pretty unified in wanting to help people feel God's love in the scriptures. But we're pretty much not the same. This guy's got really nice hair, and I wish <laughs> I had nice hair. And even yeah. our suit jackets are different. So the point here is we don't have to be the same, but we do have to be one and unified. And notice how Paul uses an example of how you can be unified, even though you might be called to very different specific responsibilities. Now, this order here is, is powerful. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So, he just listed off five officers uh, beginning with apostles. And if you look at what the definition of an apostle is, it's a, it's a prophet, seer, and revelator. It's, and we'll get to that when we cover the epistle to the Hebrews more in depth. But that's what he gave first, called apostles and prophets. And then the evangelists, Joseph Smith translated that to be patriarchs. Others in, in, more, uh, in other Christian traditions see evangelists as missionaries, people who go out and evangelize, spread the word. And some pastors, those would be like bishops, state presidents, relief society presidents, uh, young women's presidents, primary presidents, people who oversee a flock out in, out in the pasture, these little lambs, and we protect them and we guide them to the still waters and to the green grass. And then teachers. I think it's beautiful that he's listing out all of these different roles or officers, and it's not a competition. The problem comes when a teacher, for instance, places themselves first in that list above a bishop or a state president, above God's prophets, seers, and revelators, or when anybody puts themselves in a different inverted set of those offices that, that Christ has established. And distracts from the purpose, which is revealed in verse 12, for why these offices exist. That's right. So, we don't just call you to an office so you can be a title bearer, so you can occupy a seat and get the glory of the world. You actually, with every office listed there or each role or assignment given there in verse 11, there are some associated duties. There, there are tasks, missions for you to accomplish. And verse 12, why do you get that assignment? For the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And how long do we do this? What is the time frame? What is the, the, the reference point for this? Verse 13, till we all come in the unity, oneness, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do we still have our work cut out for us regarding the timing? And then we get to 14, which is the purpose for why this is all happening in the first place. That. So, did you notice the first word of each of those verses? 11 is the, the list of the, the roles. Verse 12 started with four, which gives us kind of the intent of the duties. Verse 13 starts with till. So, we're going to do this until what point? And then verse 14 is that, so this is the purpose, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That's our purpose, is to help anchor people in Christ and through his infinite atoning grace and mercy and merits, it makes it so that people aren't just being tossed every direction by the winds of doctrine that are blowing. It's interesting he uses this word children in verse 14, which is in contrast to the generic word for an adult. We're going to use the word man here as Paul does. And in the Latin, the word for man is this word, vir. So, a real man is a vir, or a real adult who's mature is a vir. You've probably seen in other words in English, like the word virtue. And virtue really means about being a real adult, somebody who's mature, who's wise. And who is the real vir, the real man? It's Jesus Christ. He is the one who is one and invites us all to be one with him. So, virtue is a quality men and women should be aspiring to have. So, now look at the, the conclusion of this little sequence here in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Notice this, this uh, couplet that comes together. We need to speak the truth in love. It's not enough just to tell the truth and to correct people and to give commandments and give law. You have to give love. And it's not enough just to extend the love and withhold the truth. You have to do both. One of my favorite all-time examples of this is a talk that was given at Enzyme College back in 2022 by, uniquely, this setting, it was President Dallin H. Oaks standing at the podium together with Elder Clark Gilbert, the Commissioner of Education for the church. And the two of them spoke back and forth, not terribly unlike what we're doing here, except for their talk was prepared and prophetic. And the name of their talk was Stand Fast in Love in Proclaiming the Truth. And it's that beautiful interplay, and that they, the entire talk, if you've not heard this or read this, highly recommend you look it up, because what they do is they walk you through some pretty sensitive, pretty difficult social issues of our day, and they model examples of how you can stand fast 
in speaking the truth in love. So if you want to watch how, how President Oaks and Elder Gilbert interact with some of these difficult concepts like, like questions regarding race today or LGBTQ issues or some of the, the difficult issues in our history, they, they model this, this concept as well as any I've ever seen. Which unfortunately is rare out in the world of social media. There are many people who claim to be speaking the truth, but if you just pause and say, are they really speaking the truth or are they simply pontificating their opinion? And more importantly, are they speaking in love? And if we use that little framework, when we happen to hear from other people, are they really speaking the truth? And deeply important, are they also speaking out of love? Then those are probably people to listen to. It's my personal thought that if somebody is not speaking the truth and if they're not speaking in love, they probably aren't worth listening to at that moment. They are a child of God, but probably not worth it. God himself is only a being of truth and love. That's it. He doesn't embrace anything that is lacking in love or is lacking in truth. So if we spend any of our time embracing or listening to or supporting people who say anything that isn't true or isn't also based in love, it's keeping us from progressing to be like God. So why not we just set those people aside? We can look for people like church leaders who do speak with truth and love. And there are many other people around the world who do speak with truth and love. But it takes a little bit of work to find them. It does. And, and the reality is, is we live in a world that would say, no, the right thing to do is say, Taylor, you you are loved. I love you. God loves you. Go do whatever you want to do. And that's that's the world's message. Go live your truth. Which is not really love. It's worldly tolerance. Because if you really love someone, you're going to encourage them to do things that will bring lasting joy, lasting happiness, lasting peace, lasting connection with God, not what the world offers you which is temporary pleasure, temporary enjoyment, but it's not lasting. And it's, it's not built on how can I help you to become better? It's what can I get from you for me to feel good or, or to be rewarded in some way. So let, let's bring this back here. Paul is asking us to be unified in Jesus Christ. That message is alive and well today in the restored gospel. We encourage you to look around at the voices in the world today. How many of them are inviting you to be one? Or are they trying to create division? And if they're trying to create division, you might ask yourself, is this really a voice that I should have in my life? Which, if you look at verse 19 now, the wording here is beautiful because it, it gives us this concept of who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. I'm no longer seeking for oneness in all of these different groups. I'm seeking for one, for me. That's it, just me. What can I get out of it? Which when I'm past feeling, then I'm going to turn inward on myself, which is a reflection of what the devil did in heaven in the pre-mortal council, and it's what he's encouraging all of us to do now. So, 
Paul then finishes verse or chapter 4 with a long list of how to get along with others in the church who aren't the same as you, who don't think exactly the same as you do, who don't have the same perspective and experience as you do. So, verse 24 through 32 would be something if you're in a presidency or in an organization, uh, a group, and you're struggling in those relationships, just read verse 24 through 32 and look at the imperatives or the command, the, the, the active verbs that Paul is telling you to engage in. And we'll finish with verse 32. And by the way, these work for families or friendships or any kind of relationship. Any relationship. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What a beautiful finishing part there. Now, chapter 5, he opens with verse uh, 1 and 2, be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. A sweet-smelling savor, this is beautiful, when in the temple, um, and by the way, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, they would have known what he was talking about with a sweet-smelling savor because they would sacrifice animals and burn them. Whether they were Jew or Gentile, it was just offered, different parts were offered to different gods in the temple in Jerusalem. It's offered to the God of, of the Old Testament, Jehovah. And if you didn't salt the meat before putting it on the altar, it wouldn't smell good. But when you salt it, oh, it's a sweet-smelling savor. Ye are the salt of the earth. And he's asking us to, to Paul's bringing these two uh, uh, examples together here beautifully, and then you get the opposite example. If you're not the salt, and if that offering is not sweet-smelling savor, what is it? Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it be or let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. And he just keeps going with this long list. All these ways that people can be disunified. And, and he finishes with verse 8, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So, we've got both salt and light, both contained in that that incredible Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. You get some allusions here. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, skipping down, he gives a long list again, starting in verse 14, with a lot of command verbs, a lot of imperatives, the, these actions. 14, all the way down to 25 things that you should do in a, a covenant connection or a marriage in their time. Now, remember, we've talked about this back in 1 Corinthians, and it's really important here as well, that he's writing to those people at that time with their cultural constraints. So, rather than reading this and saying, okay, now, without any help from our current prophets and apostles, we're going to completely apply this to our own marriages. If you do that, you'll probably end up, if you're a man, sleeping in the doghouse. Watch what happens when you combine scriptures 
with words of living prophets and apostles who are guided by the Lord for our day to help us know what these means or what these principles mean. In October 2022, Elder Ulysses Suarez gave that incredible talk in partnership with the Lord. Listen to these concepts. Let us consider two fundamental principles that strengthen the partnership between man and woman. The first principle is we are all alike unto God. So skipping down a little bit, he says, therefore, in this context, we are all considered equal before him. And then he says, when spouses understand and incorporate this principle, they do not position themselves as president or vice president of their family. There is no superiority or inferiority in the marriage relationship, and neither walks ahead of or behind the other. They walk side by side. That feels a lot like unity and oneness to me. Sounds like what God would say about covenants. When he would say, walk before me, it literally means to walk face to face. And if I'm standing behind you, I can't can't see your face. Or if I'm standing in front of you, I can't see your face. The only way to be face-to-face with somebody in a loving relationship is side-by-side. So listen to this. They walk side-by-side as equals, the divine offspring of God. They become one in thought, desire, and purpose with our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, leading and guiding the family unit together. So again, I, I think you probably notice I really like this talk, and it's one of those that if you haven't read it recently, it's worth rereading. Um, listen to this part, he says, because some people have taken the proclamation on the family to the world, and again, they've tried to divide out the men from the women and make it a competition of my role's better than your role, or my role's not as good or as important as your role, which is not the point of the proclamation. It's to bring God's daughters and sons together in unity and oneness. We do have different capacities, different propensities, different roles, but they aren't intended to be divisive or or even dividing lines. Listen to this. To nurture means to nourish, teach, and support family members, which is done by helping them to learn gospel truths and develop faith in Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in an environment of love. Now, is that something only women are supposed to do? Or is that your role in your home as well as mine to to be one with our spouse in making sure that this happens? What about presiding? Because in the world's definition, preside just, it it feels like president. It it feels like you're over everything else. And, And some people think preside means I'm a dictator. The word dictator comes to dictation. I'm the one who speaks and everyone just has to act. And as we said uh, in a past episode, preside means to sit with, like to sit in counsel. So now listen to Elder Suarez define that word for us in a home gospel context. This is beautiful. To preside means to help lead family members back to dwell in God's presence. This is done by serving and teaching with gentleness, meekness, and pure love. There's nothing that we would associate with with a dictator or a supreme power of the world's definition of presiding contained in that. It's this 
helping bring people into this unity of oneness with God. So let's jump to, towards the end here of chapter 5. In verse 27, he says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what the Lord's doing with this unified group that's coming together, is getting rid of all the wrinkles, getting rid of all the blemishes, all the spots. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And we happen to live in an environment, in a culture, in a society that is constantly feeding the appetites and desires and passions of the flesh to try to encourage men and women to break those covenants with their spouse and to look for other relationships as opposed to binding themselves to the Lord with the spouse in oneness with that complete covenantal loyalty that it's it's like God. When I make a covenant with him, he will never break it. And I want to be more like him, which means when I make a covenant, I will never break it with, with him as well as with a spouse. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. There's the theme of one. There's the one again. What a beautiful principle for, for young couples to seek this unity and oneness, which now brings us to chapter 6. And here again, he's speaking to his audience who are in a very particular context. We're going to see uh, more themes about how people can be unified, children to parents, even slaves within a slave society, which in Roman times they had. So culture matters for context, but doesn't mean we apply the culture that we find in the context. Which now brings us to the one of the most famous passages of all of the Pauline epistles. Uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 11, when he says, Put on the whole armor of God. That. So you could put in front of the word that, the word so. It's to the end that, or so that, ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now remember, the words put on come from enduo. It's, this is a temple text. This is a passage of being endowed with power from on high. And how does that endowment play out? It plays out symbolically with clothing. The endowment is to put on or to sink into this sacred garment. So what is it? And he's telling you, you've got to put on all parts of the armor. You don't send, you don't send a soldier into battle with only half of his armor on, or they're going to aim at the part that isn't covered and he's going to die. So we're armoring ourselves so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he clarifies, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there's nothing wrong with doing object lessons with the medieval armor. That's fine. But that's not what Paul's specifically talking about. He's talking about being clothed for a spiritual battle. Look at verse 13. What do we start with? In the, the clothing, this endowment motif, the very first item of clothing he mentions is, verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. 
So if you picture the, the symbolic beauty of having the powers of procreation covered with power from God, and what are they clothed with? Truth, not the world's deceptions, not the world's lies. We start there. And then what's next? And having on the breastplate of righteousness. So you picture the, the breastplate or your heart, your lungs, your, your vital organs being covered with righteousness, some, some element that symbolizes righteousness. And then verse 15, your feet are going to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have something on our feet which is a symbol of the path of life, this covenant path that we're on, this journey that President Milton always talks about. The word peace is also interesting because we're talking about armor, and armor is not something you typically use in peaceful environments. So the peace here is that even though the gospel is about peace, there are forces at war with us, and we have to be protected in the gospel, not with the intention to go out and hurt others or to be offensive in, in a negative way, but instead to be able to proclaim and distribute peace. <laughs> By the way, before we, before we go any further into this armor, you'll notice that if you peel back all of the layers of the symbolism here, you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ at the heart and core of every single element in this endowment passage. Loins girt about with truth, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The breastplate of righteousness, he is the embodiment of righteousness. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, he is peace. He is the embody, he is the prince of peace. How beautiful upon, upon the, the mountains. mountains. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. I, I love looking at the temple garment as a shield of faith, covering everything um, to, to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation. There's going to be something in that endowment sacred clothing to cover our heads or to be placed on our heads, and it's salvation. Think about, so the heart, righteousness. The head, thoughts of salvation, thoughts focused on God, on the Savior. And you'll notice that everything up to this point has been defensive in nature. It's been protective in nature. Verse 17, the second half says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So there's something that's going to be hanging at our side in this sacred clothing symbolism that Paul is laying out for the Ephesian saints that's going to look a lot like a sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's sharp, and it can divide asunder the wiles of the devil and the powers of darkness and that chain of darkness that the devil holds in his hand, as described back in the book of Moses from Enoch's vision. So we can now use that sword of the Spirit. And what is the sword? <laughs> it is the Word. Isn't that fascinating? If you take the word sword, what is it? Well, it's embedded in the actual word sword. It is the word of God. 
And what do we hold in our hand? It's the power of God from the words of prophets, both past and present, as we move forward. That's how we we fight in a Christ-like, peaceful way, without bashing, Bible bashing with people, without contending, because he who contendeth with another is not of the Lord. That's the spirit of the devil, the and spirit by, of contention. And by the way, sometimes just showing a sword might be enough to convince people that they shouldn't be attacking you. So we don't have to throw the scriptures at people or beat them with the word of God. We can simply just show it to them. And hopefully they say, man, I would also like to have access to those powerful protective elements that God is freely offering. So next time you get the opportunity to go to the temple, don't just see it as a ritual that is just filled with certain clothing elements and certain uh, covenants that are being made. Look at everything in that temple as a connecting point to Christ. And being connected with Christ, then he connects us with God the Father and with heaven. Everything in that whole experience is meant to bring us together in unity, in love, in oneness, and in Christ's grace to be able to access the power that he has to give to us in, in the, the endowment and sealing and the initiatory and in the baptisms and confirmations that take place in the temple. Now look at verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Notice who we're supposed to be praying for and persevering with and supplicating for? It's for all saints, not just the ones we like or not just the ones that think the way we think or have the same likes or dislikes as we have. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's a powerful conclusion. Again, Taylor started us here with the context of Paul in bonds, in prison. Now he finishes, but he's not looking at those bonds as having just earthly power. He's looking way beyond the bonds to what they symbolize in an eternal sense for him, which is the invitation that he's giving us in, in any kind of a temple symbolism or a church symbolism to see beyond the actual elements to how they're connecting us with Christ. This is a beautiful conclusion. Peace be to the brethren, and that is the generic term for everybody, brothers and sisters in Paul's day, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. That's a powerful closure. So to, to finish off, may the Lord bless all of us to come together in unity, in love, that there won't be any more foreigners, no more strangers, no more middle walls of partitions. The Lord broke those all down. So let's not keep rebuilding them. Let's not keep separating things out. Let's not fight, whether it be in the family, whether it be in the church, or whether it be in our other relationships, but let's find a way in Christ to come together to become one. That's our prayer, and I think that's the message of Paul. 
for all of us. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Thank you.